part, and of course, as uh, Brother Dennis has pointed out, that verse that's on the front of your bulletin is in this passage that, that we see today. And uh, I appreciate your being here. I tried to update people with emails several times yesterday to let them know that uh, uh, we'd be open. But it was actually pretty questionable for a while. Our water pipes in the Fellowship Hall uh, busted, and uh, we'd fix a section of the pipe, turn on the water, and then we'd hear water gushing two feet down, and we'd go cut out that section of pipe and fix it. And you know, we'd turn on the water and hear another leak gushing another two feet down. And uh, so finally we ended up, uh, there is no copper pipes to be found anywhere, so we ended up uh, using some uh, a garden hose from out front and some hose clamps to temporarily get water uh, going. And uh, we had to make two attempts at that before we got a, a section that wouldn't leak. So right now the fellowship hall is a mess, so we're not going to have uh, meals here till we get that fixed. We tore sheetrock out of three different rooms back there to, to get into the walls, um, and I found stuff in the walls I won't even tell you about, but uh, at any rate, it was quite a challenge, and I appreciate uh, my friend Jim Wells was up here uh, helping all day long. Dennis and Elaine were here till last night. If you all didn't notice, we have a prettier front door on the church, thanks to them, and uh, so so grateful for all of that. But we want to look at Habakkuk. We're going to pick up in chapter 3 where we left off uh, last time. Now let me just kind of remind you of where we've gone on this journey. The whole reason I picked Habakkuk is because... Uh, I don't know, as, as I think Brother Dennis kind of indicated, this last uh, year has been a challenge. And uh, it's been a challenge you know, at the church. It's been a challenge personally for me. It's been a challenge uh, politically and in our nation. And uh, you look around, and uh, there's a lot of reasons, if you were to focus long enough, to find reasons to get discouraged or depressed or despondent or in despair. And so... Uh, I, I was thinking the other day, you know, why aren't the ungodly uh, being called uh, to justice? You know, why are, why are those who've defrauded and cheated not being brought to justice? And, and I thought, you know, surely there's some place in the Bible where that happened before and get God's perspective. And then God made me think of the book of Habakkuk. Uh, in fact, by the way, if you don't mind, turn back to Habakkuk chapter 1. There's a verse I want you to mark because I, I've already preached through this about five weeks ago, but uh, this verse I didn't specifically give you an important insight. And that's verse, uh, let me read verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1. You might want to put a star by verse 4. Uh, but it says, why dost thou, this is Habakkuk's first petition. And his petition essentially is, God, why are you letting the society around me being corrupt. Why aren't you doing something about all the evil? So here's what he says. Why dost thou show me iniquity and cause me to behold grievance for spoiling and violence are before me and there are that raise up strife and contention. So he says there's, there's spoiling, basically people robbing others, uh, uh, basically taking spoils for themselves, kind of like uh, if if riots were ever to break out in a town, I don't know, let's say like, like Seattle, for example, that you know, storefront windows would be broken in and things would be stolen. We know that it never happened in the United States, but just as an example. And, and then and he says, violence are before me. You know, just imagine uh, riots, uh, maybe based on race or some other thing, uh, maybe happening in places like, I don't know, St. Louis area, for example, uh, even though that never happened here. And it raise up strife and contention. Just imagine that every time you turned on your TV, you'd hear 
uh, arguments uh, between the two parties because they weren't uh, uh, looking at the, the good of the entire nation. They were looking at whatever advance their own agenda, but we know we have all honorable men, so that would never happen here, but just theoretically. But then look what he says in verse 4, and this verse is something a lot of people miss. It says, therefore the law is slack, and judgment never goes forth. For the wicked doth compass or surround the righteous, therefore wrong judgment proceedeth. Now, what he's saying is that one of the signs that a nation has fallen away from the Lord is they'll be given bad judges. And the bad judges will not take steps to correct wrongs. They will refuse to hear cases they should hear. Uh, when they do hear a case, they'll give silly rulings that aren't in the clear line of justice, which any person with common sense would, would know was a wrong thing. Basically, we get corrupt judges when a nation falls away from the Lord. Again, probably not anything that would ever happen here, but it's worthy of noting that hypothetical that it could happen. So the prophet's first petition that he makes is, uh, God, why aren't you doing anything about all the evil around me? The second petition he makes is after God answers his first question. I don't know if you've ever asked God a question and then you don't like the answer. Uh, but that happens sometimes. And so he, he asked a question because God said after, he says, why aren't you doing anything about evil? God says, well, now that you mention it, Habakkuk, I'm going to send the Chaldeans to come and judge the nation of Judah. And they're going to devastate the nation of Judah. And people will be carried away into captivity. And basically all the land will be plundered. And there just won't be much left. Everything's going to be desolate. And then... This brings up a new question for Habakkuk. Well, God, the Chaldeans, which we also know today as the Babylonians, uh, they're worse than we are. Why would you use someone more evil than Judah to come and judge Judah? What about them? I mean, how come they're not already getting judged because they're far more wicked than we are? And God responds in chapter 2 with a series of woes where he details the judgment that's coming upon God's enemies, namely the Babylonian people. And we actually see this unfold a few decades after uh, this prophecy where uh, Babylon is basically uh, destroyed by the Medes and the Persians. Uh, and so we, we see that uh, there. And then we get to, to the end of, well, actually right in the middle of these woes, because there's five woes, in the middle, in the third woe, we actually see God's sovereignty in his presence and his glory proclaimed. So even in the middle of judgment, there's God behind the scenes working to accomplish his will. And then we got to chapter 3, and when we got to the beginning of chapter 3, we actually see uh, the encouraging news that, uh, that God has some, some reasons to be praised. And chapter 3 starts off a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, and then he says, Lord, I heard thy speech. I was afraid, O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years, and in the midst of years make known in wrath remember mercy. He says, God, do two things. Now that you've told me what judgment's coming, get on with it. Get on with it quickly. Do it in my years while I'm still alive to see it. And, and Lord, please, in your wrath, remember mercy. While you're judging, while you're chastising, would you provide mercy to those who repent? And those were his two requests. And then he has this picture of, in his mind of God 
descending on Mount Sinai. He says in verse 3, God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. And so he actually just uh, uh, begins praising the Lord as he remembers God thundering down upon Mount Sinai. So he's basically saying, God, when you, dis- when you look at uh, displaying your wrath, would you also remember mercy? And then he remembers how great God is. Now, someone has suggested there's a, maybe an alternative outline to the one I've suggested for Habakkuk, and that is that at chapter verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3 are Habakkuk's prayer to God, and that's true. And then there's Habakkuk's uh, portrait of God. This is him talking about what it was like to be at the foot of Mount Sinai or what it was like to see the glory of God displayed in earlier times in the Old Testament. And we're going to get into a lot of that. And then finally are the verses that are kind of covered on the front of your bulletin, which is Habakkuk's praise of God. And that's certainly a reasonable outline. Uh, We remember last time that in verse 3 he starts out his praise of God saying, praise God for his arrival. Uh, It was phenomenal to have been at the, the plain around Mount Sinai uh, and uh, the wilderness of Paran, it says, and to see God's glory on display. So he, we saw the praise for his arrival, then we saw the praise for his appearance. And some of you may remember I showed you the picture of uh, uh, Michelangelo's carving of Moses. The Bible tells us in Exodus 34 that when Moses came down from uh, on top of Mount Sinai, that there were rays of light shooting out of his head, so much so that Joshua and Aaron and the people that saw it feared. And the Bible says that Moses had to put on a mask, not for the coronavirus, mind you, but to make sure that people didn't have to see that glory that frightened them because he had been in the presence of God for so long that he himself shone. And, of course, the longer he was away from the mountain and away from the presence of God, that glory began to fade and fade till finally he was able to take the mask off. And in Hebrew, the word for rays, the rays of light shooting out, is also the word for horns. So when Michelangelo decided to create a statue of Moses, he was trying to represent those rays of light that had been coming out of Moses' head coming down on the mountain. And so if you look at the top of Moses' head, there's a couple of horn-looking things, which is appropriate because I think the King James Version actually has the word horns, whereas more modern versions have the word rays, but it's the same Hebrew word. But obviously Michelangelo had studied Scripture enough to understand that when Moses came from the presence of God, he was radiating the glory of God from having been in his presence. And so he... where. Uh, Habakkuk praises God for his majestic appearance. And now we get to the passage of scripture that we're at today, which is praise for God's action. I wonder if you just, uh, well, we're going to read so many scriptures we'll, we won't stand, but let's just start uh, at verse 8. Was the anger of Yahweh against the rivers? Was your wrath against the rivers or your uh, fury against the sea when you mounted upon your horses, upon your victory chariot? You laid bare the nakedness of your bow, swearing oaths with the arrows of your word. You split the earth with rivers. When the mountains saw you, they writhed. A torrent of water swept by. The deep gave its voice. It raised its hands on high. Sun and moon 
stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows they moved about, at the gleam of the flashing of your spear. In fury you marched through the earth, in anger you trampled the nations. So this is a depiction of this glorious uh, uh, work of God. Thou wentest forth for salvation of thy people, even for salvation of thine anointed. Thou woundest the head out of all the house of the wicked by discovering the foundation unto the neck. And then uh, some translations here, as they should, have the word silah, which is a, a notation, musical notation, to pause. Thou didst strike through with his staves the head of his villages that came out as a whirlwind to scatter me. Their rejoicing was as to devour the poor secretly. Thou didst walk through the sea with thine horses through the heap of great waters. When I heard, this is his reaction to the presence of God, my belly trembled, my lips quivered at the voice, rottenness entered in my bones. I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he comes up upon the people, he will invade them uh, with his troops. And then we get the famous verses. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines. The labor of the olive shall fail, and the field shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he will make my feet like hinds feet, and he will make me to walk upon my high places to the chief singer upon stringed instruments. So this is meant to be a hymn. So there's a praise for God's action, first of all, in nature. So as he begins describing this portrait of God, he says, you know, all we have to do is look at nature to see the greatness of God. And so he starts off with some rhetorical questions. Uh, he says, was God, when he's at Mount Sinai, was he demonstrating his wrath against the, the rivers? Or was he showing his wrath against the streams? Uh, was, he, was he angry at the seas to have done all this? And Hebrew is a highly poetic language. And so these are highly poetic kinds of questions to ask. But in other words, is God mad at nature? Is that why he was so uh, terrifying in his presence at Mount Sinai or any other time in history that he's come forth in judgment was he angry with nature? No. God's simply demonstrating his glory and power over nature and by several ways. Uh, think about it. He turned the Nile River into blood. Uh, and then he, he uh, parted the Red Sea. So much so that people, three million people, were able to cross through the Red Sea on dry ground. And then the minute they get across and the Egyptian Pharaoh's armies decide to follow the Israelites into the Red Sea, then all of a sudden the waters collapse and drown Pharaoh's entire army. That's, uh, that's just a really, that was probably the biggest and most spectacular of the miracles in, in the Old Testament. When you think of it, it's why Cecil B. DeMille chose that one to make a movie about. It was that parting of the Red Sea. And then when they got ready to cross the Jordan, to me this is maybe even a more fantastic miracle. But the Bible says that the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant put their feet into the water of the Jordan and the water stopped. Now, the Jordan, it was at that time of the year the Jordan was overflowing its banks. There was water up, or snow up in the mountains. It was melting. There was a constant current of water. And the Bible says the water stood up on a heap, which means God put his hand there to stop the water, but the waters kept piling up. And it got higher and higher and higher. And, you know, I'd have been a little freaked out if I was about halfway through the pack that was crossing the Jordan River because that waters weren't too high at first, but they're getting higher and higher and higher. The only thing is they never got higher than the hand of God. And so uh, the waters never came, but basically the waters kept coming 
But God's hand stopped him and three million people walked across on dry ground in the bottom of a riverbed. Again, a, a fantastic miracle. So God's motive isn't that he was angry at nature, but he used nature to demonstrate his power and his glory. Uh, because as Brother Steve pointed out in his Sunday school lesson this morning, it wouldn't sound very good for you and I to put our glory on display or to be up here uh, preaching or something so people pat you on the back and give you an attaboy because that's not what this is about. It's about glorifying God. But it is consistent with the nature of God to glorify himself because he deserves glory. And there's nothing more appropriate than for God to do things to glorify himself. Now, how does he do that? Well, there's two ways Habakkuk points out. One is he destroys his enemies, and the other is that he delivers his people. Well, I'm really pleased that uh, I feel like I'm in that second category, that I'm part of his people, and that uh, I see his mercy and his deliverance uh, throughout my life. Uh, But notice what he says in verse 15. You trampled upon the sea with your horses the churning of many waters. It's it's as though Habakkuk is uh, picturesque... In picturesque language, there we go, is describing God as the hero that rides in on the horse to save the day. And this is in stark contrast to the Babylonians who were known for their horses. And earlier in Habakkuk, it says that their horses were like leopards. They moved so fast. Whenever the Babylonians went to war, they just mowed things down. They mowed them fast. They went in on a cavalry. They attacked suddenly. They attacked without warning. And they devastated their enemies. And yet we're going to find out that within a few decades of this prophecy that the Babylonians and their horses uh, were were destroyed in, in 539 B.C. Now, by the way, there's a little bit of a timeline, and it's, it's too hard for you to read there, but I've got some squares around things. All these squares are around 539 B.C., and what you can see there is that uh, there is a prophecy of the destruction, and then the Medes and the Persians come against Babylon. They come under the wall of the city. Uh, they destroy it, uh, and then the, the Babylonians, of course, had earlier captured uh People or Babylonians carry a part of Judah into captivity is when this happens. But then it's not that much later that Babylon itself suffers uh, a great, uh, you know, great tragedy. Uh, now, God's majestic action. He says, "Thy bow is made naked." In other words, He's taken His bow out of a sheath. You know, we think of swords being in sheaths, but they used to also keep their, their bows in sheaths to keep them protected. He says, you've taken your bow out, you're getting ready for action. And he says, according to the oaths of the tribes, even thy word, or the oaths of your arrows, is another translation, even your word, thou didst cleave the earth with rivers. So God uncovers his bow. He's getting ready for action. He's getting ready for, for war. And then he vows, basically, he said, according to the oaths, he vows to take action with his bow. In other words, God has told Habakkuk, listen, don't worry about the Chaldeans or the Babylonians because I am going to judge them. And I'm giving you that promise. And God always keeps his oaths. God always keeps his promises. Now, this is going to be one of the things Habakkuk realizes when he breaks into a song of praise here in a minute is that one of the reasons that everything around you is going to pot that you can still praise the Lord is because God still keeps his promises. He keeps his oaths. And so uh, he's going to take action by sending these arrows of judgment on. And and then he describes this, you know, the the majestic action. God is the one who forms rivers. 
Uh, that's, and in fact, is Habakkuk describes it very picturesquely that God creates creases in the earth's surface into which the river waters flow. And he's talking about how powerful do you have to be to crease the surface of the earth. And that's, that's his description of the power of God. And, and so he talks about his action in nature, his action among the nations, and his action against his enemies. Now, by the way, the things that he describes in Habakkuk 3 of God showing his power and judgment sounds a lot like Deuteronomy 32 in many places. In Deuteronomy 32, uh, God is called a consuming fire. It says, For a fire was kindled by my anger, and it burned up the depths of Sheol, and it devoured the earth and its produce, and it set afire the foundations of the mountains. And, and we see fire in Habakkuk 3. And then he says, They will become weakened by famine and consumed by plague and bitter pestilence, and the teeth of wild animals I'll send against them, and the poison of creeping things in the dust. And so uh, this is a series of curses upon those who are enemies of God. He says, uh, just as we refer to the arrows that went with the bow, he says, I'll make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain. He says, when I sharpen my flashing sword in my hands, take hold of it in judgment, I'll take reprisals against my foes. So it's not an uncommon theme in the Old Testament for God's warrior character to be seen of his sword and his arrows and his bow and his attacking and all the tools that he has that can bring uh, men to to judgment and hopefully maybe to repentance. Now, in the process, he personifies nature a little bit. Again, this is actually a poem, and not only is it a poem, but if you looked at the very last verse of Habakkuk, it was meant to be a hymn. It was meant to be sung. That's why he said it's to the chief musician upon stringed instruments. It was written to be played with music. And so in this, this language, he describes the mountains and he says the mountains, when they heard the verse of God, they, they writhed. You know, writhing is when you kind of turn from side to side and anguish or pain. And when God descended on Mount Sinai, it says the mountain quaked and the rocks were broken up and there were avalanches down the side of Mount Sinai at the time. And these mountains that uh, Habakkuk describes as having been there from the beginning of time quake in the presence of God. Uh, this word writhed refers to that twisting or, or turning, even like uh, uh, some women in the midst of painful uh, labor. And then the, the witness of the rivers and the mountains and the flooding of the waters are all in recognition of God's power. So uh, God's power can cause a lot of upheaval in nature. Uh, we had some weird nature stuff happening this week for sure, but certainly there have been far more. Uh, the fact is, I've, I've been watching, if you watch the news this last year, you know that a worse place to be than here was China and the tremendous floods they had and millions and millions of people whose homes were destroyed by, by floods that just never stopped. In fact, I don't know if they've stopped yet. Uh, it's just every day there's news of more floods out of China. But there's this tremendous upheaval in nature, especially as you, know, you see the Red Sea and you see the, the Jordan River. Now, this, this passage amazes me. Look at it again. This is, uh, it talked about the sun and moon standing still. Now, we know at one time that happened in history, don't we? Because Joshua was in the, the valley of Ajalon and he needed more time to fight a war, so he asked the Lord to stop the the sun in and Gibeon to stand still, and the moon in the valley of Ajalon. It says, and the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on its enemies 
Is that it not written in the scroll of Jasher? The sun stood still in the middle of the heaven and was not in haste to set for about a full day, so like an extra day. Now, by the way, let me warn you, you'll, you'll occasionally see these articles that somebody puts that uh, uh, they've gone and done research at NASA and found out there was a missing day in history. That's, that's bunk, okay? That's just something to make Christians look stupid when they quote it to others, so don't, don't share that story. But it doesn't change the fact that God did make the sun stop still for about a day. Uh, and uh, so... But I think when Habakkuk says it, what he means is when you see something that is so awesome and terrifying, you kind of stop dead in your tracks, don't you? And what he's saying is the lightnings of God were so bright and, and so impactful that even the sun and the moon had to stop and, and admire them. And I think that's the, the poetic language he's getting at. But look what he says in verse 11. Sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows. These arrows are picturing the lightning bolts. If you've ever watched lightning bolts, especially if they travel from uh, the, 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 the ground up to the sky... Uh, that's a specific kind of, of lightning bolt. It's, it's very, very uh, bright, very, very hot. Uh, and he basically saying it makes the light of the sun look like nothing. Uh, and the sun and the moon would stop in its place. And so in the venting of his wrath and all the brightness of his glory on top of Mount Sinai and the lightnings, he's basically saying the sun and the moon can't hold a candle to the, the presence of God. Now, by the way, something interesting happens here. When sun goes from the ground, uh, lightning goes from the ground to a cloud, that's called uh, return lightning. And uh, interesting enough, it's like a ball shooting up from the ground to a cloud, and the temperature inside the lightning strike can get to 50,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Well, the surface of the sun is between 13 to 15,000 degrees Fahrenheit, so a lightning bolt is three and a half to four times as hot as the surface of the sun. And that's fascinating to me that it's in the book of Habakkuk, but it took us centuries later to figure out this science. Uh, but it is true that a lightning bolt is something even the sun has to respect because of the heat and because of the power. And so while all nature shook, these arrows and spears of God's wrath, his flashes of lightning that are pictured elsewhere in Scripture in the Psalms, they speed to their targets and, and the, the brilliance of the sun and the, the moon pale in comparison uh, to, to that light. So he's praising God for his actions in nature because he says what God does in nature ought to cause us to pause and think on his majesty. And then he says you need to praise God for his actions among the nations. So first of all, in, in verse 12, it's really interesting. He says, Thou didst march through the land in indignation. Thou didst thresh the heathen in anger. Uh, he pictures God as this giant strolling through the earth and leaving destruction in his path when he's in judgment. It's like he's, he's uh, moving a sickle back and forth. Now, I've never used a sickle, but back when I was in Texas, my very first job that I got paid for, seems like I got paid two fifty an hour, that's, that's the, or $2 an hour, this is the number of sticks, but we use what we call a weed whacker. It was this long pole, and down at the end it kind of had a curved... Uh, metal frame and it had a two-edged blade down there and you'd get to a lot in west west texas that had grown up with weeds and you'd go out there and you'd just swing this thing back and forth and it would chop the weeds down but you had to you did a lot of swinging it was hard work 
and uh, you're, you're cutting weeds that are probably going to grow back up next week and you'll get paid $2 an hour to go whack some more weeds. But I did a lot of weed whacking on my first job. And, uh, I, but God is pictured as having a tool like that and he's going through the earth and he's judging his enemies and, and basically cutting them down to size. Uh, in other words, God is not the kind old man upstairs uh, that just sits there with this look of benevolence on his face. He's a mighty God and he's fully capable of judging and wrath. Um, I, I was going to include a video here. I just didn't have time. Uh, but some of you, some of you older folks <laughs> will remember a, I hesitate to call him a mu- musician. I'm not sure what you would call uh, the fellow that became known as Tiny Tim. That was not his original name. But uh, he used to sing in super high pitch. If you want to see this for yourself, go home and Google Tiptoe Through the Tulips by Tiny Tim. Uh, it's, it's disturbing to hear, but it was this song, it was one of the two songs that he was famous for, probably the only two songs which he was famous for. And uh, but this idea of God isn't just tiptoeing through the tulips. He's, he's striding through the earth, uh, leaving a wake of destruction on those who are his enemies. He's a, this, so Habakkuk describes him as this mighty thundering giant. And quite frankly, the English language can't do, or the Hebrew language can't do justice to the size of God because he's omnipresent. But this is Habakkuk's best attempt at expressing it. And he marches to the earth to judge his enemies and, thank God, to bring deliverance to his people. Habakkuk is counting on God to judge the Chaldeans as he promised, but also to deliver Judah in wrath to remember mercy. Now, we hear his motive stated again. And we started off by questioning his motive to say, what is God's motive? Was it to punish nature? And so here again in verse 13, he says, Thou wentest forth for the salvation of thy people, even for the salvation with thine anointed. Thou woundest the head out of the house of wicked by discovering the foundation unto the neck. So he says, here's, here's his real purpose. His anger and his wrath was, was not vented toward nature, and it's, it's or nor is God's wrath against everyone. His wrath is against wickedness of those who do not repent. And his, he purposes, it says, to deliver his own. You went forth for the salvation of your people. Now, it's interesting in this particular verse, Brother Steve brought out this morning that sometimes the King James is good about capitalizing uh, a noun when it refers to, to Christ. Uh, they didn't do such a hot job in this verse because when it says thine anointed, uh, a lot of people want to apply that to Israel. But Israel, nowhere in the Old Testament is called the anointed. That term is reserved for the Messiah. And so when he says, you go forth for the salvation of the people, even for salvation with thine anointed, he means with your Messiah, the one that's coming to bring deliveries. And of course, Jesus Christ, we know, is that Messiah that he comes for. So, but God's purpose is what we call special deliverance. God provides salvation for all mankind. It's available to anyone who will receive Christ. But it only takes effect in those who receive him as their Savior and they get the benefit of what Christ has done on the cross. But I think the key idea in this passage is that God always has the long game in mind. When he's doing things like judging uh, the Babylonians or chastising Judah, his ultimate purpose is his plan to redeem those who will receive Christ. So... That everything leads up to that. Think about this. 
Babylon had the full capability of destroying Judah completely, wiping it from the face of the earth, wiping it off the history books, never to be seen again. But what would have happened if Judah had been totally wiped out? Then somebody whose, whose title is the Lion of the tribe of what? Judah, that is Jesus Christ, couldn't have been born and wouldn't have fulfilled all Old Testament prophecy. So even while God's getting ready to chastise Judah with the Chaldeans, he's got the long game in mind, I'm going to preserve a remnant out of Judah because one day the Messiah will come out of Judah. A scepter will rise up out of Judah. And the King of kings and the Lord of lords would come from that tribe. So his motive is always the deliverance of his people. Now he describes in the last part of verse 13 how God crushes his, the enemy leaders, those who are opposed to him. Notice this is, Thou woundest the head out of the house of the wicked by discovering the foundations unto the neck. This is kind of interesting Jewish language. It is, if we were using that language for this building, we would say that God would rip off the steeple and the roof first, and then he would collapse the walls. And so what he's saying is he, he destroys the leaders, and then he devastates what's left of the nation once the leaders are gone. He crushes the leader. He strips him. Uh, they rip off the roof. The walls fall in. And just like he destroyed Pharaoh's horsemen, just like he destroyed other leaders in Scripture. And then you'll notice it, it says at the end of verse 13, in the King James Bible at least, it has that musical notation, Selah. In other words, stop and think about this a minute. God has the ability... And, and it probably helps us to remember what Selah is. We looked at this last time. It, it's a pause in a song. It's used 71 times throughout the, uh, the Psalms. But it, it means, it comes from a verb which means to exalt or to lift up. So in other words, he, he, he's saying when you look at history and see God's dealing with the nations and how he can cast down one nation and bring up another, you ought to pause for a minute and reflect on the greatness of God. Now... I could opine on my thoughts on the last election and what happened, but the reality is whether you want to look at the Dominion voting machines or you want to look at uh, uh, the fact that Mark Zuckerberg funded $490 million of his own money to put up uh, unauthorized ballot boxes across Pennsylvania and across Georgia or any of those other things, the reality is, is that God allowed the president we have to come into power and in being. And in part, I think, because it's, it's time for chastisement to come on the nation and maybe to wake us Christians up to, to, uh, to praying to God for revival. But no powers come to be that aren't ordained of God. Romans 13 tells us that. And so... Habakkuk has to realize in his own society that, yeah, things are bad, and God's judgment's going to make them worse. But no matter what, as Brother Dennis said earlier, God's still on his throne. God's still in control. Christ hasn't lost any of his power. And, and, and it's just a, this, the Selah is the third time, by the way, that's used in chapter 3. It's, it means to stop and think a minute 
about the greatness of God. Uh, the first one was in, in uh, chapter 3 and verse 3 where he talks about God appearing on top of Mount Sinai. He says, stop and think about that, what that looked like, and realize how great and terrible God would be to encounter his glory. And then when he vows to destroy his enemies, stop and think what that means, that God never fails to keep a promise. So it's for sure. And then in verse 13, he talks about how he destroys the leaders and he, he demolishes their houses. Now, we have the account in Exodus 14, of course, of the drowning of the, uh, the people at the Red Sea. And, of course, this is probably the most spectacular of all of the, the miracles in the Old Testament. Again, the one that uh, you know, was framed in a movie. And then in Numbers 21, just uh, listen to what he says here. He says, He hath not beheld iniquity in Jacob, neither hath he seen perverseness in Israel. The Lord his God is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. God brought them up out of Egypt, talking about the deliverance out of the land of Egypt. He has, as it were, the strength of a unicorn. Surely there's no enchantment against Jacob, neither is there any divination against Israel, according to the time that it shall be said of Jacob and Israel, what has God wrought? By the way, what's that phrase famous for, what has God wrought? Anybody remember? What historical event in modern times? This was uh, what Alexander Graham Bell, if I remember, sent uh, uh, as his first message, or it was one of the first messages to travel across the telegraph. What has God wrought? Uh, and so this was a, a, a unique accomplishment. I thought, well, that's an interesting thing to send. Behold, the people shall rise up as a great lion and lift him up as a young lion. He shall not lie down until he eat of the prey and drink the blood of the slain. And then this is in the context of Balak and Balaam. And Balak said unto Balaam, neither curse them at all nor bless them at all. You remember Balak tried to hire Balaam to curse Israel. And every time Balaam would open his mouth, he'd bless Israel because he couldn't do anything else. And, and uh, this is an example of where God thwarts an evil leader's plans and blesses a nation instead of cursing a nation. Uh, throughout the book of Joshua, so you know, God destroyed Jericho, walked around the city seven times and then blew a trumpet and the walls fall down. You remember Joshua after the battle of Ai, uh, he hanged the king of Ai and, until sundown, and then they took it down. These are all examples in the Old Testament of God defeating kings and defeating those in power. And Habakkuk is saying in verse 13 uh, that that's one of the things that he does. He says, you, you, you take the head out of the house of the wicked by discovering the foundation unto the neck. And Daniel, we see it come true. Uh, it says this is the, you remember they're having a party. Uh, there is Belshazzar there, and he's having this party. He goes and gets, uh, they're, they're drinking, a lot of excess drinking in Babylon. And uh, they decide they don't have enough things to drink from, so they go get the golden vessels that had been in the temple when they captured Jerusalem. They bring him in, and they start having a party with the vessels that had been dedicated to the worship of God. All of a sudden, there's this hand on the wall, and it writes, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Yepharsin, or Mene, Mene, Tekel, Perez, depending on, on which is one, the root word for Yepharsin. Basically, it says the kingdom is divided and it's given to the Medes and Persians. And the Bible records, in that night was Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, slain, and Darius the Median took the kingdom, being about threescore and two years old. Gives me some comfort to know, uh, Brother Steve, that when we get in our, our 60s that we can still conquer things. Uh, so that's, that's, a, that's a good thing to know. But basically, Habakkuk knows all this history he says, I know it's going to happen again. And Daniel shows us that it did, in fact, happen again, that God judged the Babylonians. 
Habakkuk says God's going to bring his enemies from pride to panic. He says, Thou didst strike through with the staves and the head of the villages. They came out as a whirlwind to scatter me. Their rejoicing was as to devour the poor secretly. I think this is interesting. He says, These people are coming as to scatter me. He takes this personally. It's not just the Babylonians are coming to, to chase Judah out into the wilderness and, and to kill everything there. But he takes it personally. He's part of Judah. He says, they've come to scatter me. And he says, you know, but there's this, this sense in which that, that God's awesome revelation is going to speak of the ultimate desolation of the enemy. He says, their rejoicing was as to devour the poor secretly. He says, they were trying to devour us, but you're going to judge them. And enemies of God will be thrown into panic and uh, their barbaric hordes are going to be discovered or described as bandits who are going to uh, gloat over the people that they conquer. And that was what they did. They worshiped their own ability to conquer others. He says, God's enemies are, are, are prideful right now. They're going to go to panic later. Um, I see this in modern society. If you look closely and you watch the news, and I don't watch the news nearly as much anymore. I can't watch it without just getting depressed. But one thing I do notice is that uh, when, when people win, uh, they have this real pride that goes on for a while. And then when they get starting pinned down and the consequences of their actions start coming home to roost, then they, then they have a panic. And I think we're going to see a lot of that in the future. Um, this, it, it actually paints a rather unique description. And the description is that the enemies of God are becoming so confused they're going to self-destruct. In 2 Chronicles 20, there's an amazing story. Jehoshaphat's king over Judah and the Midianites and the Ammonites and the Edomites from Mount Seir come to attack him. And Jehoshaphat calls all of Judah together and proclaims a fast throughout all Judah. And then this prophet comes up. Uh, we only see this prophet. His name is Jehaziel. He's only here in Scripture. And Jehaziel says, you need to go down tomorrow by the, by the wilderness, by the cliff as is. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord with you. You shall not need to fight in this battle, O Judah and Jerusalem. And the next day they get up. They put the choir in front of the army. Now, that either means the choir was really bad singers or they thought they'd try praise before they tried something else. And they start singing. And, and they're... They sang a rather repetitive song from what we can read in Scripture. Praise the Lord for His goodness and His wonderful works to the children of men. <laughs> and may His mercy endure forever. And they sing it over and over again. And what happens? It says, when they began to sing, the Lord sent ambushments against the Midianites and the Ammonites. And they destroyed one another. And then whatever was left, they turned against Mount Seir. Long story short is when Judah got to the wilderness... All their enemies had destroyed each other. And Judah had not lost a single life. Basically, God is so powerful that he can make his enemies self-destruct. Now, by the way, when Habakkuk says this, he is not, uh, um, he's not talking about this event because this event was far past. It was centuries old by this time. Uh, it was about 300 years before Habakkuk's writing. But Habakkuk's saying it'll happen again. God's enemies will be so confused that they'll destroy each other. Uh, and we see his power uh, happen that way again and again. See, when you talk about God glorifying himself, another way to express that is that God puts his power on display. How do we glorify God? When we see his power on display. When we talk about what he's done in our lives. When we acknowledge that he has done things that we might be tempted to take credit for ourselves. 
we put his power on display. And, and he goes back again and again to Mount Sinai or to the parting of the Red Sea for his imagery. And he talks about how the, the Egyptians pursued uh, Israel into the Red Sea and ended up being in their watery grave. And God's victory over Egypt's horsemen is pictured like he himself is trampling on the sea while riding uh, a horse and uh, bringing his own power on display among the nations. And then he says, praise God for his actions. Or, or Well, he says, we've seen God act in, in nature. We've seen God act in the nations. But he says, now I just want to praise the Lord. And I love the way Habakkuk ends. These are my favorite verses. But look, look at, first of all, he's just gotten through thinking about Mount Sinai. When you and I think about Mount Sinai, we just remember it was a childhood story we read, but we, we don't really go back and read the text, and we don't really see how, how granite rocks were falling in pieces and tumbling down the side of the mountain. You don't really see how the lightning flashes four times hotter than the power of the sun, and that it was so great that nations around Mount Sinai heard, and they themselves trembled in fear. We don't see that demonstration of the glory of God. We don't have that in our mind. So what, what happens? He says, he says, when I really think about how great God is, and I think about what he did at the Red Sea, and how he's dealt with enemies in the past, and how he dealt with King Jehoshaphat to cause the enemies to slaughter one another, he says, my stomach shakes. You ever had your stomach shake? Uh, there's two meanings to that, by the way. I, I, I have had, in times of intense fear, or in times when my very life has been threatened, I have felt my stomach quiver. But it also means that your heart is pounding. Maybe you haven't had the stomach shaking, but I think everybody's had their heart pounding. And it pounds so much, you can feel every beat as it's going out. And your whole body feels the heartbeat because it's boom, boom, because you're terrified. And that's what he says. And when he really got into thinking about the majesty of God both in nature and on top of Mount Sinai and at the Red Sea and in his affairs with the nation, it made him realize that when God says, I'm going to judge Judah and then I'm going to judge the Chaldeans, this was a big deal. So much so that his heart pounded. And, and not only that, his lips quivered. His lips quivered. I should, I'm going to tell something on my wife just because I can because uh, she's forgiving, so she lets me say stuff like this, and it's easier to get forgiveness and permission sometimes. But uh, Judy has an ability to do two things better than anybody else. She can make her chin quiver. Now, if she's a little upset about something, you'll see her chin quiver, and it will melt your heart. But she can not only make her chin quiver, she can do it through the phone so they hear it on the other end. So uh, last Sunday, of course, was Valentine's Day. Unfortunately, one of my friends forgot that, and he's now in trouble. Uh, but at any rate, it was Valentine's Day, and so we went uh, to, uh, I had made reservations at a favorite restaurant, and I was going to take her there. And, you know, I've, I've learned over the years that even though Taco Bell's affordable, it's not where she wants to go on Valentine's Day. So I made reservations somewhere nicer. And uh, But then I got thinking about the Thorntons. They're at home. Uh, the pastor's blood pressure, his systolic pressure is very high, even though his diastolic pressure is where it ought to be today. So they're, they're at the house, and we're just kind of keeping them isolated until we can get things under control. But anyway, I thought, you know, they need something for Valentine's Day. They, they don't go out. They haven't been in a restaurant since the whole coronavirus thing came up. 
And so uh, I thought, you know, let's order them some food. So I, I got up last Sunday morning before I, you know, got ready to preach, and I, I ordered food from a barbecue place. And they took my payment, by the way. And then I thought, oh, you know what, my kids are going to be hungry too. I forget that sometimes, but they continue to eat in spite of my forgetting. And so I thought, well, I'll order the kids something. So everybody's fed. My neighbors are fed. My, my kids are fed. Then Judy and I can go out and enjoy Valentine's meal together. And so after I got through preaching last Sunday, I drove to a uh, barbecue restaurant. I got to the barbecue restaurant. There were no lights on. whole place is closed down. Their, their computer took my money, but nobody was there to deliver the food. So we've since contacted them. They assure us that we'll get a refund this week, that we're one of hundreds of people that this happened to, not a problem. But then I, I had to come up with plan B because now I've got a bunch of people that are thinking they're going to eat and so Cotton Patch was open. So Judy called an order. I rushed down to Cotton Patch to get the order. I walk in, pay for the order, get it. And they told me that they were about to close because the weather was getting worse. One lady said she lived only one exit away, and it took her 30 minutes to drive to the restaurant. Oh, well, that's bad. So anyway, I got home with the food. But while I was sitting in Cotton Patch waiting for the order to be complete, I called another restaurant. It's our favorite Mexican restaurant. I called them and said, are you open? They said, yes. And I said, would you please make a reservation for my wife and me, and we'll be there in about 40 minutes. They said, okay. Got off the phone, went home, fed everybody. I said, Judy, we need to go quick before anybody else closes because we're running out of options. And we drive to the Mexican restaurant, go up, and the deadbolt on the door is locked. So... All of a sudden, I found myself in a position on Valentine's Day that I had fed everybody except my bride. This was not going to be a good thing. And I knew that Cotton Patch was in closing, and I thought, you know, I don't know if we can make it there before they shut the doors. So I'm driving out of the parking lot, and Judy says, hold on a minute. So she calls the Mexican restaurant while we're in the parking lot, and clearly they are shut down. And she asked them if we can get in. They said, oh, no, ma'am, we had to, had to close early for business because the weather's getting really bad. And then she, she did it. She says, well, my husband just called 40 minutes ago and made a reservation because you said you were open and you would let us in. And then she made her chin quiver over the phone line. And they heard it on the other end. And so they said, hold on, let me talk to the manager." which is clue for they can't say no to my wife. And so, sure enough, talked to the manager, whose name is Robert, which automatically makes him a nice guy. But anyway, he, they opened the restaurant. They let us in. Turned out we got our food before one of the other two tables that were in there did. We left before they did. Uh, so we were in and out with no impact to them. Nobody had to stay later simply because of us. But, but she has that power. Uh, to, and, and so Habakkuk's lip quivered, and you could have heard it if you were talking. Uh, and you probably can hear my wife's chin quivering over the phone if she's ever really begging you to do something. And you will say yes, I promise you, because uh, you can't say anything else. But you can hear that. And then he says, uh, basically, my legs are about to fall out from underneath me. He, he says, that which is beneath me trembles. In other words, uh, and the King James says, uh, says it a little differently. He talks about the fact that rottenness entered into my bones. In other words, have you ever just felt like your legs were going to collapse? And I, I've had this feeling a few times, sometimes after taking a medication for pain, and I'll just feel like if I don't sit down, I'm going to fall. Basically, he says, my legs are so weak, they're, they're trembling, they're going to fall underneath me. And, and here's why. 
Here's why he had all these physical symptoms. He says, uh, because I will wait quietly for the day of trouble to come upon the people attacking us. They were about to be attacked. And it was not going to be pleasant. And yet he, he says, I'll wait quietly. Now that's a good thing, by the way, is to learn to wait on the Lord. But he had all these problems. So his heart pounds, his lips quiver, his legs tremble. He felt as if his bones would melt. But he decides to just wait quietly and confidently on the Lord. By the way... The Bible says, in quietness and confidence shall be your strength. We need to learn how to be quiet before the Lord and confident in the Lord. Um, that's, by the way, is Isaiah 30, 15. For thus saith the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest shall you be saved, in quietness and confidence shall be your strength. But see, a, a view of God's majesty ought to do a couple of things. One is it ought to make us shut up. It ought to make us be quiet. But the other thing it should do is it should make us confident that whatever God says he will do, he will do. And we'll put our trust and confidence in there. So Habakkuk adapts at this point. Habakkuk, he started out Habakkuk questioning God and why God wasn't solving the problems. Then he hears how God's going to judge the wickedness in Judah. And he questions God again. Why would you use somebody more wicked than us than to come and judge us? But now he's no longer questioning God. He's praising God and he has a new purpose for life, which is to quit questioning and to learn to wait patiently on the Lord. By the way, I think that's a pretty good purpose for all of us. I'll, I almost seem to remember, I don't know, somewhere. They that wait upon the Lord shall what? Shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Maybe we ought to take that to heart. I could use some of that, as I'm sure you could too. But he decides this is a due purpose, to wait patiently on the Lord. And he looks at all the past things that he remembers about God and God's power on Mount Sinai and God's power in dealing with the nations and God's power on display in, in history. And he looks at all of these things and he becomes assured that God can judge Babylon just like he says he's going to. And that this, this chastisement will be for a limited period of time, but God will wipe out his enemies. And God will preserve a remnant of Judah. And he was confident that one day he would renew Judah. He would renew those acts of power with wrath on Babylon and mercy on Judah. And so we get the famous verses. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines... The produce of the olive fell, and the fields yield no food. If the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet will I rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. To me, that's, quite frankly, I think those are my favorite verses in the Old Testament. Probably not supposed to have favorites, but I think that would probably be among them. He has a resolve to rejoice. He is weak physically. He's trembling from the judgment that's coming. And yet he's very strong spiritually here because he says, I'm going to praise God no matter what. He outlines the worst possible consequence. There's no food. By the way, that happened. There's no flocks. That happened. There's nothing else of any good that's happened, but I still will praise the Lord. Even if there's absolute ruin around me. Now, by the way, how bad did things get? Well, we, there's a book of the Bible called Lamentations. It's written by the prophet Jeremiah. And he describes some of what happened to the nation of Judah. 
It says, uh, Lamentations 2, to their mothers, they say, where, these are the kids, where's the bread and the wine? They faint like the wounded in public squares of the city as their life is being poured out onto the bosom of their mothers. In other words, the kids are starving and they have no strength left. That's pretty bad, isn't it? It's bleak, right? Uh, Lamentations 2.20, see Yahweh and take note with whom have you dealt thus should women and their young children uh, of tender care uh, should priest and prophet be slain in the sanctuary of the Lord. So religious leaders were slain. Women were killed. Their children were killed in these raids. Uh, Lamentations 4, the tongue of the nursling cleaves in its palate and thirst. Children beg for food as one lays it out, as, as no one lays it out before them. He basically says the mothers can't even nurse their children. The children are dying of thirst and nobody's providing food. Isn't that pretty much the worst of the worst? Um, I almost hesitate to read <laughs> the next verse. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of famine. They have pined away, very hungry for the crops of my field. The hands of compassionate women have cooked their children. That's as bad as it gets. They become something to eat in the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because of this, our heart has become faint. Because of these, our eyes have become dim. Because of Mount Zion, which lies desolate, foxes tread upon it. He says, the nation has been destroyed. Babylon didn't leave much of Judah. Babylon didn't care about them. Babylon, unlike other nations that would have taken people captive and just made slaves out of them, Babylon came and got the few that they thought might be something someday, like Daniel, to turn him into... Uh, a wise man, but the rest of the people, they didn't care about. To them, all they want to do is lay waste to stuff. That's just how wicked and how cruel they were. So bad things did happen, and yet we have Habakkuk saying, hey, even if everything is at its bleakest, yet will I praise the Lord. And by the way, do you notice he doesn't just say, no matter how bad it gets, I'll endure. That's not what he says. He says, no matter how bad it gets, I'll praise. Those are two very different things. One is just saying, I'll survive. The other is saying, I'll rejoice. Those are two very different and distinct things. Habakkuk is saying, I'll rejoice in the Lord. I'll be joyful. How in the world do you do that? Well, God is the inexhaustible source of joy. Without Jesus Christ, quite frankly, my life wouldn't be worth living. And there's a lot of days I get up and I focus on the wrong thing and I think that. And then I remember that Jesus loved me. There's got to be something I'm here for. Uh, and I remember the fact that he died for me, so I'm worth something, even though I might not feel like anybody else thinks I'm worth anything. Jesus Christ does. The Lord liveth, and blessed be the rock, and let the God of my salvation be exalted. By the way, this word, God of my salvation, is used elsewhere in Scripture. Psalm 25, 5 uh, talks again about, uh, For thou art the God of my salvation, on thee do I wait all the day. The thing is, people keep trying to buy happiness and they're never going to find it. You can't buy it in a store. And as much as I would like to think so, Amazon.com can't deliver it. 
I, to me, that's the only way to shop is if you can order it and have it delivered. You know, and of course, I'm not a big Jeff Bezos fan, so I try to find other places to order nowadays uh, other than Amazon. But you, Amazon and all the other places, they don't deliver happiness because happiness isn't found in your circumstances. It's not found in your possession. Joy is available to everyone even if they're stripped of every material possession if they realize that Jesus loves them, if they know God cares for them. If they know that God is on his throne, no matter how bleak things look, they can have joy simply trusting in God. And Habakkuk finds his strength in verse 19. He says, the Lord God is my strength. He'll make my feet like hind's feet. He'll make me to walk upon my high places. Where do you get the strength? It's God and God alone, the strength for resolution. So what have we learned as we close? God's motive in everything he does is twofold. One is to destroy his enemies, and the other is to deliver his people. God does both to glorify himself. God's past displays of power are proof, are proof uh, that he will do what he says in the future. And all throughout nature, there's reasons to glorify God. And we should adopt that purpose of waiting on God to see what he'll do. That's a great purpose. Just wait to see what God will do. I, I, I can't fight the political climate, but I can wait on to see what God will do. I can't probably influence judges to make changes, but I can wait to see what God will do. That's all I can do. But boy, isn't it wonderful to wait on God? Get to know him better. Get to love them better. Find more reasons to rejoice. God is worthy of praise even when everything's going wrong. And our attitude to praise has to be intentional. You're not going to wake up tomorrow morning, especially since it's Monday. And, and I did not get any work done this last week. I didn't have internet until 1.30 this morning. And for my job, that's bad. I'm, I'm another week behind earning a certification on which I have a deadline. I'm another week behind on courses, and I have a new boss who's wondering why those courses aren't getting done. And I've been trying to say, boss, I don't have Internet. But it was, it's a bad thing for me to not be able to do my job. And so i got to get up and, and redouble my efforts tomorrow morning. And Monday isn't looking good. And uh, if you're like a lot of people, you might have more uh, bills than you have money between now and payday. There will be a lot of stresses. But you know what? You will not wake up feeling like, oh, praise the Lord. You have to get up and decide, I'm going to praise the Lord. I think Habakkuk probably had to make this a daily resolve. I think maybe he started quoting his own verses to himself, especially since he put them to music. He probably got up and sang those verses to remind himself that he needed to Praise the Lord. What's great to me as we close is this idea. Habakkuk started this book about to go under. Feeling like he's going to drown. And I felt like that a lot this last year. Disappointments in different areas of my life that I, sometimes I just feel like, what's the use in going on? There's no encouragement. There's nobody to come alongside and, and, and help. There's no... Uh, nothing good is happening. And, and yet you have to make an intentional resolve because why did Habakkuk feel like that? He's focused on the corruption. He's focused on the violence. He's focused on the wickedness. He's focused on the conflict and the injustice and the court cases that weren't going the correct way. 
but then he changes that focus and he gets on that high ground of praise by focusing on Mount Sinai, focusing on the awesome presence of God, focusing on God's miraculous deliverance of Israel across the Red Sea and his miraculous ability to let Israel cross into the promised land and the destruction of the nations and the way of Israel inside the promised land and the victory after victory after victory that God gave his people and the times that God let his people repent. And so the basis for a life habit of praise is just to walk with the Lord. I wish sometimes when I preach that I could come to a magic truth in Scripture that nobody had ever found before. And that if I told you that truth, you would go home and you would put that truth in your life and it would radically change everything about you. And you'd come back and see me months later and say, you know, I heard that magic truth you gave that day on February 21st, 2021. And it changed my life forever. I don't have anything magic to give you except this. Wait on the Lord. Spend time with the Lord. Focus on Him. Because if you don't, you're going to drown in despair. But if you do... He can set your feet on high places. He can make them like the hinds feet. He's talking about the, the mountain guys. If you go out to YouTube and look for uh, some videos of mountain goats climbing the side of mountain, I'm telling you what, they'll, they'll get this much of, of a rock jutting out and they can put their whole hoof on it. And I keep thinking they are going to fall. And I see these baby mountain goats climbing the rocks with their parents. And I'm thinking that baby is going to come tumbling down. And, and nature is going to end the mountain goat population as we know. And that, you know. But he says, listen, you can, I'll set you on high places. You can climb where others can't climb. You can be where others cannot be. He says, I'll make your feet like hinds feet. I'll make you to walk on the high places. I'll put you on higher ground. Only way we can do that is to have a relationship with him. So what can we do? Last slide. We need to change our focus. I need to change my focus. It's too easy for me to look at all the problems. And boy, if I was looking for problems, I'd have found them in the fellowship hall yesterday. Plug one plumbing leak, another one comes up. Plug that one, another one comes up. Two trips to Home Depot and Lowe's, and there's no copper to be found anywhere. And so we're held together with duct tape and bailing wires, we would say at Texas A&M. In this case, it's automotive hose clamps and a piece of garden hose from the front yard of the church. So what's holding us together until copper is available and we can replace the pipe. Probably going to have to rip out kitchen cabinets. Quite frankly, we don't have the money to do any of that. That's why I'm up here tearing into sheetrock and my friend Jim Willis is up here with me and we're spending 13 hours trying to patch the plumbing it's because we don't have the money to call in the professionals. And professionals, by the way, if you try to call a plumber today, you can't get an appointment between March the 7th. We've already checked. And if they came out, they would have charged probably $1,500 to rectify the problems that we did yesterday with a few trips. And we don't even have a permanent solution yet. And, and it's, it's scary thinking about we've got problems we don't have the money to fix. I, I hate that. I don't like that feeling. It makes me feel bad. Um, and yet, if I look at that, I'll get in despair. But if I look at who's on the throne, and I would love to see more seats in the seat. 
but we've got folks that are worshiping online. I know that as soon as the sermon goes live, on average, 60 people download it within an hour of it being posted out there. Brother Steve's Sunday School lessons do the same. There are people out there who are hungry and listen because they want to hear God's Word taught. And I take courage from that. But even if nobody else listened, God does. And if we just please God, isn't that really all that matters? And all He really wants from us is for us to focus our attention completely on Him. So commit to resolve to praise the Lord. Well... Poet Edgar Guest once said he'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. He'd rather one walk with him than merely show the way. For the eyes of better pupil and more willing than the ear, fine counsel is confusing, but examples always clear. And the best of all the preachers are the men who live their deeds, for to see the good in action is what everybody needs. For I can soon learn how to do it if you'll let me see it done. I can watch your hands in action, but your lips too fast may run. And he goes on. I won't quote the whole poem. But i got to tell you about a friend of mine named Christine, although all of us call her Candy. I won't go into all the challenges that she's faced, but let's just say that the last number of years, marriage has not been kind to her, and yet she's been faithful to her vows. Uh, Life keeps presenting challenges. She keeps having to... Uh, in order to honor husband and move from one place to another. and She doesn't really have a home of her own, so to speak. Uh, she has a lot of other struggles, and anyone else that would go through her circumstances I think would have given up a long ago. And yet, I don't, can't tell you the number of times that Judy and I have seen Candy just put a big smile on her face, and she says, praise the Lord anyway. And I, those words, praise the Lord anyway. She used, to, she used to say it, and I, I would think, what is wrong with you? you you've got to be an, an, an airhead to praise the Lord when your life is so bad. And now I realize that she must know what Habakkuk knew. No matter what happens, praise the Lord anyway. And she puts a smile on her face, and she blesses everybody that knows her. She sings to people. Uh, she ministers to them. She shares the gospel with them in her own simple way. And she puts a smile on your face when she just says, praise the Lord anyway. So, as Brother Dennis leads us in a song, my challenge to you is maybe you would commit with me, and this is kind of against my nature to do, but I'm going to get on my knees and tell the Lord, for the rest of this year, Lord, I'm going to praise you anyway. Maybe you join me at the altar as Brother Dennis leads us in song. What number?